So as you were saying hi to everybody around you, did any of you actually say, what does it mean to be born again? Because that's really what we're talking about this morning is what does it mean to be born again? That's kind of the, the big question of these verses. And there's a lot of detail here that I just won't have time to get into. So I'm probably going to skip your favorite part of this passage, and you'll be upset with me, but you can come up and tell me that later, and then we can talk about it later, okay? Um, Because I just got to kind of try and go through it and and hit the highlights here. So let's start off with with just kind of thinking back about the context of of where we are in the book of John. If you turn back a, a page or two to John chapter 1, Look at verses 9 through 13. John 1, 9 through 13 says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now this, John lays this out in the, the first chapter, and Pastor Jeff talked about this, but really the, the portion of scripture that we're looking at in chapter 3 is kind of a, a, an unpacking of what this is talking about. Because we have Jesus and Nicodemus, and they're in this conversation, and what they're what they're talking about is what it means to be born again. And here in John chapter 1, John starts out by saying, uh, verse 12, to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this born again is introduced here in chapter 1, and it's further explained later in chapter 3. Last week, Pastor Jeff was in uh, chapter 2, and we saw Jesus had, had grown up. He has, a, he has some disciples with him now, and there were two things that we looked at last week. We looked at how Jesus is the, the Lord of the wine and the Lord of the whip. If you remember, that's, I think that was the title of Uh, Jeff's message. And we looked at how Jesus performed his his first miracle in Cana at the wedding where he turned water into wine. And then after that, he goes into the temple and he sees all kinds of craziness going on. There's money changers, there's people selling sacrifices. It's just kind of a, it's like a flea market in the temple. And he gets angry and rightfully so, righteously so. And he goes through and he just, he cleans it all out. He turns tables over. He says, get out of here. What are you guys doing? This is not a place for you to make money. This is a place to worship God. And we saw how the disciples uh, remembered that it was said of the Messiah that zeal for his house, for his father's house would consume him. And this is kind of the, the outworking of that. And then at the very end of chapter 2, in verse 23, we start to read, 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So after the, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus sticks around Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he's doing crazy things. It says that uh, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he was there, he was talking to people, he was preaching the good news of himself, and he was accompanying those things with miracles, with signs. Uh, whenever John talks about signs, he's, he's referring to the fact that, that Jesus is, is performing miracles. And those miracles were signs that he is who he says he is. They were signs that he was really the Messiah. And so when, when John mentions this, uh, these are supernatural things that are going on and they're pointing people to the fact that he is the true Messiah. So then we come to chapter 3. And we have this guy named Nicodemus. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Stop there. Who is this Nicodemus? Well, number one, he's a Pharisee. And number two, he's a ruler of the Jews. Now the Pharisees were, were interesting people. Uh, in the religious culture of Israel at that time, there were kind of two main groups. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees tended to be the more uh, liberal, uh, open-minded, oh, there's, there's no real resurrection, uh, just kind of a little bit looser in their theology, um, they didn't necessarily believe everything that the prophets had said. And so they were, they were one group, and they tended to be the ones who were, uh, who were the priests, who were people in charge in the temple. Uh, they were, tended to be wealthy and people of, of high standing in, in those ways. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a group of people who kind of rose up uh, at the level of, of the common man. And whereas the, the Sadducees were, were more lax in a lot of things, the Pharisees went way the other direction. And they were hardcore, literal about everything. Um, you need to do this, 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 and this, and this. And it says so here in the scripture. And they wanted to take the scriptures literally and and obey them and live them out to the nth degree. So much so that they were the ones who, who would come up with, with all these laws about, you know, what does it really mean not to work on the Sabbath? And, uh, you know, you could take so many steps, but don't take one more because then you're working. Uh, you can lift this many pounds, but don't, don't you dare do one more ounce because then you'd be working. You know, and so they were the, the literalists of, of the day. And, you know, you might think in, in a lot of ways that's a good thing to take God's word literally and to obey it and try and see how it uh, can be worked out in your life, right? 
Like that's, that's good. That's admirable. These people would have been uh, good Christian people. You know, they would have done all the right things and looked the right way and said the right things and been passionate about their scriptures. And the problem, though, was that they took it so far that, that they fell into this, this works-related salvation. They thought, okay, this is what I have to do, and if I do all these things, then I'm okay. Then I'm saved. Then I'm part of the kingdom of God because I'm doing the right things. Which is very tempting to think that way. But the problem with that, and hopefully you know this, all the good works in the world amount to what in regards to salvation? Nothing, right? The Apostle Paul in Philippians is recounting his life as a Pharisee, and he's saying, look, I was born into you know, this tribe, I did this, I did... I, as to, you know, good works, I was like the tops. As to my zeal, there was nobody who, who beat me. And yet, I count all of those things as garbage, as dung, as refuse, rubbish. When it comes to actually being saved, that did nothing. And this is the situation that Nicodemus is in. He's a Pharisee. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he's a good Pharisee. And he is also a ruler of the Jews. Now that is referring to the fact that he had a place on the Sanhedrin, which was uh, the, the religious political ruling body over the Jews at that time. And it was mostly the, the Sanhedrin was in large part uh, made up of the Sadducees. So the fact that he, as a Pharisee, was in the Sanhedrin uh, points to the fact that this was a, a very important, influential guy who had influence not just with his own little sect, but, but with everybody. He was well-respected. He had power. He had prestige. He lived a, quote-unquote, righteous life if you wanted to be spiritual, look to Nicodemus because he's the man. And yet, he's missing something. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and there's a lot of speculation about just the circumstances of this meeting. And I don't know that they're all that important. Um, you know, why did he come at night? Was he afraid of the rest of the Pharisees? Uh, you know, some commentators go there. Uh, was he, uh, you know, was there some sort of uh, special assignment that he had to try and recruit Jesus to do something? I, I don't know. It doesn't say that. Um, other commentators just say, well, it was, you know, Nicodemus worked all day, and then it was nighttime, and so he went to see Jesus at night. You know, just simple, like, that was the time of day that he went. 
you know? And that's what people would do. They would work during the day and then they would go visit people at night. So there's, there's this whole range of uh, speculations about why did he come at night, but he came at night, okay? So this man came to Jesus by night, verse two, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you, that you do unless God is with them. So Nicodemus, he, he starts out um, on a good foot. He calls Jesus rabbi, which is the, the term that the Jews would use for, for a teacher, uh, somebody who had people underneath him who he was discipling. So he was, uh, he was not being demeaning to Jesus. He was recognizing that Jesus is a, a teacher. And there's uh, you know some implication that the fact that Nicodemus calls him rabbi uh, also kind of implies that maybe Nicodemus has something to learn from Jesus, like seeing him as, a, as an equal where maybe they can help each other out. So he says, rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And he's referring back to all the signs that Jesus was doing uh, during the Passover, people were, were seeing these things. Uh, the Pharisees were around. Nicodemus was, had probably watched these things. In fact, Nicodemus may have cheered Jesus on as he was cleansing the temple because that's something a Pharisee would do. They would, you know, want to go in there and clean house and say, look, this is about worshiping God. This is not about making money. That's like something a Pharisee could jump on board with. And so he's, he's seen all these things that Jesus is doing and he, he confesses, he admits, nobody would be doing these things unless God was with them. However, notice he says, unless God is with them, not unless they are God. Subtle difference but an important difference. He hasn't fully bought in to who Jesus claims that he is. He hasn't fully bought in to the fact that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is deity come to earth. He's not quite there. Verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is interesting because Nicodemus comes and he addresses Jesus and he doesn't necessarily ask a question, but Jesus just jumps in with an answer to the unasked question. Um, Jesus was a good people reader. He knew what was in the hearts and the minds of people. And when Nicodemus came, uh, Jesus saw that this guy had a need. You know, he had everything together in terms of his outward appearance, his job, the things that he did. It was all together. But he was missing one thing. And so Jesus just goes straight for it. And he says to Nicodemus, 
truly, truly, which just means, look, this is the truth. No, really, it's the truth. This is time for you to listen. Nicodemus, EBC, listen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're Nicodemus, and in your own mind you've got everything put together, and you're good with God, and you think that you are a part of the kingdom of God, Jesus saying to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, would come as a bit of a shock. Because in Nicodemus' mind, he was, he was in. You know, he was golden. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler. He did all the right things. And what? Huh? Wait, you're saying I'm missing something? You know, this, this doesn't make sense. In order to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says to him, Whoa, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Yes, of course. Yeah, that's it, Nicodemus. You need to go find your mom. No. <laughs> um, now, again, this is, this is a new concept. You know, a lot of people are kind of hard on Nicodemus for asking these questions. I don't know how hard I want to be on him because I have a feeling if I were there, I'd be doing the same thing. Scratching my head going, born again? What are you talking about? And there's, a, there's an interesting uh, combination of words in verse 3. When, when Jesus says, unless one is born again, it can also be translated, unless one is born from above. And there's all this debate on, is it from above or is it born again? Well, I think Nicodemus' answer kind of gives us a clue as to what it should be. And I think it should be born again. Because... Nicodemus doesn't say, well, what does it mean to be born from above? He says, how can I be born again, like another time? And so I, I think, you know, depending on your version of the Bible, some of them do say born from above. But I, I kind of like the born again idea because that's what Nicodemus goes with. He says, how is this going to work for me to be born a second time again? Well... Jesus answers, and he says, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, we have this, this answer to Nicodemus' question, and this is where Jesus really, uh, you know, is, is hammering attempting to hammer home to Nicodemus the fact that there's something more to being in the kingdom of God than just doing the right things. There has to be some sort of change. Not just in your actions, but in who you are, in your spirit. 
This is not a physical, tangible thing that you do. This is something that happens inside you and you are transformed. You are made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are a new creation. And this is birth for the second time. You're born once physically, and then you have to be born spiritually in order to see the kingdom of God. And this verse here, I actually uh, kind of learned something new as I was studying. Had you asked me a week ago what uh, John 3, 5 meant, I probably would have said something like, well, Jesus is saying, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, meaning born of water, physical birth, and then born of spirit, spiritual birth. Um, and there, there are some people who kind of go towards that, but I thought it was interesting because when I went to the commentaries and started reading, that's what I was expecting to read, but not one of them talked about that. Um, pretty much everything that I read saw that phrase, born of water and the spirit, not as two separate things, but as the same thing. And I think some of the confusion comes in because of that word, and. And can be used in a couple of different ways in the English language. It's a conjunction, meaning it, it joins things together, but it can join them together in different ways. For instance, I can talk about this and that. Okay, so this and that. Two totally separate things, but joined by and. Or I could talk about uh, Tom and Jerry, which are separate things, but they are one in that they're a cartoon, Tom and Jerry. If I came up to you and I said, hey, have you guys seen Tom? You would go, Tom. Well, which Tom? You know, Tom. He's on TV. Tom on TV? What are you talking about? But if I say, hey, have you seen Tom and Jerry? It's clear, right? Two things that are one. I'm talking about the, the cartoon, the cat and the mouse. And there's a difference there because, uh, like I said, you could have two totally separate things and they remain separate but are just kind of grouped together by and, or you can have two things that are joined into one by that word and. And that appears to be what is going on here, that being born of water and the spirit is referring to the same thing. And it's this process of being born again. Now, where do we get this? Well, if you turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. But Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here we have a prophecy of this time where, where we will be washed and given a new spirit. And this is referring to this whole process of being born again. There's, there's cleansing, water, and there is a new spirit. So it's two separate things, but really it's talking about one thing, being born again. So you are cleansed and given a new spirit, and that's what it means to be born again. Which is just further ex- explanation, really, of what, what Jesus has said in verse 3 when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now he's, he's kind of fleshing it out a little bit. He's saying, well, here's another way to look at it. Being born again, being born of water and spirit, cleansed and new spirit. And then he, uh, he continues on and Verse 6, it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Several interesting things here that I don't have the time to really talk about. One thing, though, that, that's interesting is that... Uh, this idea of being cleansed and uh, verse six says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There is uh, a fallacy that says, what I do in the flesh can affect my spirit. And that is the, the fallacy of work salvation. What I do in my flesh can secure my spiritual standing. And it's not true. What is born of flesh affects flesh, and the spirit is spirit. They're separate. And we know from, from other passages in the Bible that our flesh is dirty and rotten. Uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We have this idea there that through Adam, we are all sinners in need of a savior. And thank goodness, thank God, that through Christ, his act of obedience has provided us with the answer. Sin in our flesh, but we can receive grace and righteousness and forgiveness through the obedience of the one man. And that is a spiritual thing that happens. Now, how does this all, all work? I got to skip a few verses uh, let's go down to, to verse 9. It says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, 
and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Several things again in here. Just want to draw your attention to a couple of them. First off, when Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? It's kind of tempting to think that Jesus is just uh, almost making fun of Nicodemus. Like, oh, you call yourself a teacher? and <laughs> You don't know these things? Rather than that, though, I think this is more of said with sorrow and, and pity. Like, you know, you're, you're the cream of the crop as far as spirituality, and yet you don't know these things. And it, I just sense a, a, a weight in Jesus' voice, like, man, not even you understand this. You know, of all people, you should. All right, you know, let me continue. Let me tell you. And all this stuff about, I have told you earthly things you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? All of those yous in there are plural. And, and really what, what I think Jesus is getting to is that, you know, he's been out among the people. He's been doing signs. He's been speaking the truth of who he is. And people still, they're kind of in this like, oh, wow, that's amazing. But then they go, but wait a second, who are you again? You know, and he's, he's telling them a, of all sorts of different truths. And they, they kind of get it, but then they go, huh? And he's like at this place where he's going, man, I, I tell you guys all this stuff and you don't get it. How are you going to understand if I tell you, you know, even more important things, heavenly things? You're just, you're not going to get that either. And so there's, there's this uh, sense in which I think there's just kind of this, this weight of, ah, you guys, you, you need to understand this. And he goes on in verse 14 and he says, all right, look, I've told you, you have to be born again. This is the means by which you can be born again. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we have this, this reference back to a situation in Israel's history talked about in numbers 21, five through nine. And you can turn back there again. I'll go ahead and read it for you. Numbers 21, 5 through 9 says this, The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, 
Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So that's the, the situation from Israel's history. And, and Jesus is saying, just like in that situation, Moses made that serpent and lifted it up on the pole. And when the people looked, they were saved. In the same way, that's going to happen to the Son of Man. And if you want to be saved, you got to look to the cross. Not to yourself, not to your good works, not to anything else. You look to the cross. And this is where that second birth happens. When you lift your eyes to see what Jesus has done, to see who he is, and to say, this isn't something I can do for myself. I need your sacrifice to pay the price for my sins. Because I can't do it. I know I can't do it. I fall so far short of what it would take. And at that moment of, of, of realization, something happens. You're born again. Your spirit is cleansed. Your heart of stone is turned into a heart of flesh. And you are saved. And this is something that the spirit works in you to do. And it's interesting too. You, you look at this, this example from Israel's history. And the people prayed or asked Moses Pray that God would take away the serpents. Did he take away the serpents? No. What did he do? He gave them a way to be saved in the midst of the serpents all around. And there's a parallel to our lives. I would like nothing better than for God to just zap and Take away all the sin. That'd be awesome. Don't you think? Yeah. It'd be great. But has he done that? He hasn't. In his wisdom, in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, he hasn't done that. But what has he done? He's given us a way of salvation. Right? And it's not something that we do ourselves. It is the cross and lifting our eyes to him who was killed on that cross who took the penalty of our sin on himself and when we believe in that we are saved we are born again how do I know that well verse 16 tells me for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the way. This is what it means to be born again. You believe 
that God gave his only son. And when that happens, you're no longer perishing. You have eternal life. You're part of the kingdom. That first phrase of John 3.16 is, is an interesting one. Um, when it says, for God so loved the world, it's not so much talking about the extent of God's love for the world. Meaning like, oh, he loved it so much that he did this. But rather it's saying, uh, God loved the world in this way. This is how he showed his love. It's a little bit like uh, Romans 5, 8, where it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's saying this is the way in which God has showed his love. And it's through his son so that we can believe in him and be saved. Just like, or in the same way as the people did with the snake. So we have Nicodemus, who by all accounts seems like a righteous guy. And in his own thinking, was thinking, yeah, I'm all right. I'm good. I'm part of the kingdom. The truth is, he needed to be born again. And Jesus has just told him, hey, you need to be born again. Now Nicodemus is in this weird spot where he knows the truth. What's he going to do with it? Well, that's what the rest of this passage deals with. Let's start reading in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's this interesting thing that happens when light comes into darkness. And this is what happens in Nicodemus' life. He is spiritually dark. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. And Jesus is showing him the light, showing him the way. And it just so happens that he is the light. And now Nicodemus has this, this choice to make. Am I going to accept this light? Am I going to welcome it in? Or am I going to do what I kind of naturally want to do when I'm faced with a bright light? I hated it when it was time to wake up in the morning and my dad would come into the room and would turn on the light. That was the worst way to wake up. I just hated that. <laughs> because my alarm, you know, that I could ignore that. I could sleep through it. Um, 
somebody coming in and saying, Ryan, time to wake up. But when the light came on, it was just like, even though my eyes were closed, like right now, try it. You close your eyes, but you can still tell that the lights are on. And, and it just would be like, fine, I'm getting up. And I didn't like it. I came out of the darkness into the light. And that's a silly example. But there's kind of two things going on here. If you're entrenched in evil ways, it seems strange, but many people would rather just continue in their evil ways than for them to, to own up to it. They would rather just keep on sinning than have somebody say, hey, do you realize you're sinning? And them go, oh, yes, I am. Like they would rather just continue down that dark path than to confess that what they're doing is wrong. In the same way, you know, that's somebody who's doing dark, evil, nasty things. But guess what? Nicodemus is in that too. Now he is doing all the right things. He's loving people. He's gracious. He's going to church. He's helping people in many ways. But guess what? He's faced with that exact same thing. What does he have to do? He has to go, all of this stuff that I've been working so hard at is rubbish. It's evil, even though it looks good. And you know why it's evil? It's evil because it can convince people that they're okay. Good things can convince people that they are part of the kingdom when they're not. And that's evil. Because it's selling them a lie. So when it says... In verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is the same process that we all have to go through. Whether we are, by the world's standards, a horrible sinner who does, you know, steals cars and kills people, or whether we are the perfect Christian who does all the right things, we're all in the same boat. All of those works are evil. And we have to, when we are faced with the light, confess that they are evil and that there is nothing we can do and we need Jesus. And that's hard to do. For the person who's far gone down the evil path, and for the person who's far gone down the supposedly righteous path. They're both dark and evil. And people would much rather just continue doing what they're doing than to stop, fall on their face, and confess, I've been going about this in the wrong way. And I need you, Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. 
When it says in verse 17, uh, that God did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, there's a sense in which if you're doing the wrong thing and somebody comes in who is some sort of authority figure, they may be coming in for completely different purposes and they may not even realize that you're doing the wrong thing, but what do you feel? Guilt, right? Condemnation. If you come to work and you have had a horrible morning, you're just, ah, I don't want to be here. And then your buddy in the cubicle comes in and he's like, man, today is the best day in the world. I got here 15 minutes early and I found $20 on the ground and I've already gone through all my emails. And how do you feel? <laughs> like you just want to kill that person, right? Why? It's not that they came to condemn you, but just the fact that they are light and you are dark, you feel condemnation. And this is the interesting thing about the message of the gospel. It is light. It is meant to save. And yet, to many, they see it as condemnation. But it clearly says, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And, and this is the, uh, the hard place that we're in. We like dark. We feel condemned by light. And yet, it's our greatest need. We must be born again. We must accept and turn. So, I guess to kind of wrap things up, what does it mean to be born again? There's a lot of stuff here that we, we didn't cover. I just had to skip over. Um, but to be born again means that through the Spirit, you are led to a place of realization that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you look to Christ as your Savior. He paid the price for your sins. There's nothing you can do to pay that price. You need to put your faith in him. And when you do that, you are born again. This is what the worst, vilest sinner in the world needs. And it's what the best, shiniest person like Nicodemus needs. We need to be born again. And it's only through Christ that that happens. So, have you done it? Do you believe? Are you running from the light? Or are you embracing the light? And, do you realize that there's millions of people out there that need the light? If you have it, don't hoard it. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that through 
belief through faith in him that, that we are free, that uh, we are made new, that you bring us to life. And Lord, um, it's such an amazing thing that, uh, that you do for us. And sometimes we just take it for granted. Would you help us to be inspired by your word to, to share this news with those around us who need it? And Lord, I would pray that if there is you know, any confusion in anybody's mind about what it means to be born again, uh, again, I just ask that this would be the day, that this would be the time where, where you, through your spirit, Use one of us here to, uh, to speak truth. And we pray that uh, anyone who is not saved would be today. Um, Lord, we, we thank you that we get to take communion now. Just a, a worship service for what you did on the cross. And uh, Lord, you are good. We thank you for your son. In your name, amen.